Look in John's Gospel, if you would, with me, please. John's Gospel, chapter 1, continuing our study there. If I can just back up and give you a brief reminder of where we were two weeks ago when we left off. The Baptist has been ministering in the wilderness. He has had the religious leaders of Judaism, both the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, come to him. They have questioned him about who he was, about what his ministry was all about, and he has humbly testified to the greater reality of his existence and reason for being there, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, one who because of His greatness, because of His eternality, because of His status as God of very gods, John is unworthy to perform even the most menial and lowest task of a slave. That of touching his shoe and untying the leather strap that held those sandals upon the feet of our Lord John the Baptist that says, I am not even worthy of that. And so we pick up the narrative in verse 29 of John chapter 1 and we will read down through verse 34, but then our attention this morning will be focused solely upon verse 29 because of the critical truths that John proclaims there. The next day, he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said... Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is He, on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Let me begin by asking you a question this morning. It's a question you need to answer. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? You have been asked important questions in your life, but I am telling you this morning, there is never a more important question that you can be asked and that you must answer than that one fundamental question. What is The gospel. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and read your Bible, you understand that the entirety of Scripture from Genesis at the very beginning to Revelation at the very end is given to reveal the answer to that question of what is the gospel? What is it? There's so much gospel talk. There is so much mention of the gospel in the world in which we live. Sometimes it can become confusing as to what the gospel really is. Is it this or is it that? What is it? 
And yet there are moments when not only do we realize that the entirety of Scripture answers that question, but there are pointed events that answer that question. And before us this morning in John chapter 1 and verse 29 is one of those moments. It is a succinct, forceful, and bold answer to the question, what is the gospel? And it, brothers and sisters and friends, it merits our undivided attention. It merits a pause in our lives. It merits time well spent to consider what is the gospel and what it is that John is saying here that defines the gospel for us. Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 defines the gospel this way, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel, Paul? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. You know, let's not be confused this morning. The gospel is not a few facts to which we respond with a few short words from a few hand-picked verses in utter simplicity and then move on as if nothing really happened But yet, at the same time, we claim that we stake our eternity on what we said just happened. The gospel, Paul says, is the very power of God for your salvation. Think about that. The very power of God. What power? The same power that spoke the worlds into existence is the gospel. The same power that raised the dead is the same power of the gospel. The very omnipotent God in action is the gospel and it is for our salvation. Hear Paul clearly. He is not ashamed because he understands that the answer to that question, what is the gospel, is this. That God has acted. God has responded. Sin has invaded the world which God created and God has acted from His throne with all power and all victory to redeem sinners. That is the gospel. It is for our salvation. It is not for the potential that salvation might happen. It's not for uh, the potential that somewhere, someone might respond in like power and be reconciled to God. No, it is the operative power of all that is God, all that is in God towards sinner for the securing of their salvation. No wonder it's good news. You realize this, if it's only potential, that's not good news. Good news is when it actually happens. The other is just, at best, hope. Wishful thinking. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's why. I know it is something that God Himself is doing and cannot fail in doing that will bring about the salvation of His people. 
It lit Paul up. It excited Paul. And John the Baptist, here recorded in the Gospel of John by the Apostle John, says something very similar. Notice his words. The next day, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not behold the Lamb of God who's come and we sure hope He takes away the sin of the world. Not behold the Lamb of God and here He is and now we finally have an opportunity if you want it for Him to take away the sin of the world. John, categorically, without any equivocation, he's my hero because he doesn't nuance it to death or caveat it to death. He just says, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No equivocation. No backing down. No apologies. Straight, unvarnished truth. Truth for the glory of God. Truth for the salvation of sinners. And I think it would be completely appropriate if every one of us referred to this moment of John's proclamation as the greatest point in human history from the fall of Adam and Eve up to that point, there's never been a greater time in history. There's never been greater words uttered than what John utters in John chapter 1, verse 29, up to that point. Now, there will be other great words that follow. But to that point, I believe these are the greatest words that one can hear. How shocking these words must have sounded to those delicate ears of the spiritual leaders who had been grilling John. All of a sudden, their well-crafted, well-controlled, highly manipulated religious systems are coming, crashing down with that one phrase, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You are irrelevant with your man-made systems. Yet how hope-giving that truth must have been to the ears of those like Simeon, like Anna, the prophetess who saw Jesus after His birth. How hope-giving those words must have sounded to people like that who really were looking for the hope of Messiah. Who really understood what it was to possess the need for sins to be removed. And so this morning, as we consider the Baptist's words here in verse 29, I want you to just consider with me two particular hopes that are given from John the Baptist. Not hopes as in wishful thinking, but hopes as in confident expectation. This will happen. Number one this morning, I want you to see in John's words that there is the hope of efficacy. The hope that what Christ has come to do will actually be efficacious. It will accomplish what God intended for it to accomplish. He doesn't throw it out there and hope that it accomplishes something. He doesn't put it out there with uh, a weak expectation. No, this is confident expectation that what Messiah has come to do and the forgiveness of sins will 
happen. This far removed from the New Testament as we are, 2,000 and some odd years removed from the New Testament, one thing remains very clear. John is thinking in terms of a sacrifice. Notice his words, Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. That much is clear. We don't need a lot of background information. We understand that the Old Testament is full of references to lambs and bulls and sacrifices that were offered on the altar time and time again. And here is the Baptist proclaiming for all the world from that time forward through eternity future, here is the Lamb. Not a Lamb. Not one of many Lambs. But the Lamb of God. It's exacting. It is precise. This is the Lamb whom all the other Lambs have pointed to. Scholars have debated, well, how much could John the Baptist have really understood at that moment? Did, did he really grasp what he was saying? Uh, what was his intention in the use of the term lamb? And could he have fully understood the implication of Messiah's ministry as a lamb as it would relate to the sins of his people? I mean, this is so early on. When you read those kind of things, just hit fast forward. They will question you to death. Because don't forget that John the Baptist is a prophet. And he's the last of the great prophets. And how many times did the prophets speak throughout the Old Testament about things they did not yet know of? Yet inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, they spoke. Truth that would become more and more clear as time marched on. So it is with John the Baptist here. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Promised One of God. Could he have fully understood all that was going to take place? No! But it didn't negate the truth that this is who and what Jesus is. He is the sin-bearer. The one upon whom God would lay the sins of all who would believe. And send Him away into the wilderness of the wrath of punishment and the wrath of God upon the cross. Just as those Old Testament priests had done year after year on the Day of Atonement as they would place their hands upon the scapegoat representing the transfer of the sins of the nation of Israel upon that goat to be chased out into the wilderness to die alone as punishment for their sins. This is the Lamb. The final Lamb of God. John the Baptist had, in his preaching, never forget this either, that John the Baptist had come and his whole frame of reference was repentance of sin. He understood the wickedness of his generation. And he called upon them to repent and to have their sins forgiven. This is not a mere coincidence that he uses then the imagery of a lamb. As one who bears the sins 
of one who can cleanse and remove sin. The Baptist is clear. We are talking about a sacrifice and not just any sacrifice, but an effective sacrifice. The Apostle John, having recorded the words of his namesake, John the Baptist, down, having written those words down uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, likewise loved the imagery of a lamb. For he uses it throughout his writings, and we find it again in Revelation chapter 5. How I love Revelation 4 and 5 as we look forward into the future and to see the end of all things, here is what the Apostle John sees in his vision of Christ. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four and living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Now there's a paradox for you. He's standing as though he were slain. I don't know about you, but any animal that I've ever seen slain is not standing. They're lying. But here is a victorious lamb that though he was slain, though he is dipped in his own blood, in the shedding of his own blood, he is standing in the midst of the throne. And all of heaven is gathered around Him. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth, saying with a loud voice, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I can hear Handel's lyric and music in my head as I read that. And the cre- every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And John the Baptist on that day and that Judean wilderness says this is that Lamb. This is He who will die and atone and cleanse and remove and overcome. This is Him. Don't miss it. And yet how many in John's day did miss it? They shouldn't have, but they did. You're sitting here this morning not by accident but by God's divine plan in your life. And you dare not miss it either. This is God's Word for you. This is God's Word for me. This is our moment to consider the words of the Baptist, of the prophet John, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb long that has long been that sacrificial symbol, that picture of substitution and removal of sin in the role of God's playing that role in the lives of God's people. I want you to think back with me as these very schooled and very erudite Old Testament scholars are standing there listening to John and, and the, the common people who have known the Old Testament. They, they know the stories of Genesis chapter 22. You remember that story? It's Abraham who for so long desired to see the promise of God fulfilled in and through he and his wife Sarah that a son might be born. And in their old age, at a hundred years old, God finally gives Abraham a son. Only a few chapters later to be told to take that son and to ascend up onto the mountain and to offer that son as a sacrifice. And Abraham, because he is a man of faith, because he trusted in the promises of God, takes his son by the hand and he leads him out into the wilderness up to the place of sacrifice. He builds the altar. He carries the wood. He lays his son down upon the altar. He binds him to the altar as an act of worship and faith to God who had called him, who had never failed him. And he prepares to offer Isaac. And we know the story, right? As Abraham is prepared to plunge the knife into the heart of his own son, to spill the blood of his only son, son of promise that is, God stops him and what does He provide in His place? A ram. A lamb as it were. To stand in Isaac's place as the sacrifice. He setting the tone, setting the, the example of the greater Lamb who would come. In Exodus chapter 12, God's people had long been enslaved in Egypt 430 years. They had served as slaves in a foreign land. And God, by His mercy, hears their cry. And He sends them a deliverer, Moses. And as Moses is preparing the people to leave the the, the nation of Egypt and to go into the promised land that God had provided for them and to enjoy the blessings of God there, God says, but before you go, there's one more plague that has to fall upon the nation of Egypt and upon their false gods. Each plague of the ten attacking a different false Egyptian deity. And the last to fall was the cult of the firstborn. Pharaoh himself. And God says to His people, take a lamb. Kill the lamb. Spill its blood. Take the blood of that lamb and smear the doorpost of your house. Because tonight when the plague strikes and I pass through the nation of Egypt, whoever's door is covered by the blood of that lamb, him I will pass over. But the one who has not the blood, there will be death visited upon the house. And the firstborn in all of those houses without the blood of the lamb will die. Israel understands yet again the significance of a sacrificial lamb. 
Isaiah chapter 53. The great song of the suffering servant. The Lamb of God. Here, God gives Isaiah the vision and the picture of a lamb, a suffering lamb, standing in the place of his people. Suffering the righteous anger and wrath of God against sin. Poured out upon him to the point that he's no longer recognizable and Isaiah's language shifts from that of a lamb to that of a man. And he's no longer even recognizable because of the torture of sin upon him, because of the scourging upon his body by his enemies. And John the Baptist has the unique privilege, the unique call, the unique commission to stand before all of Israel with the history of Abraham, with the history of the Exodus and the Passover lamb, with the history of Isaiah chapter 53 in their minds and say to them without equivocation, this is that lamb. You dare not miss it. You may have missed others, but you cannot afford to miss this one, for this one takes away the sins of the world. The ram for Abraham saved the life of his son. The Passover lambs in Egypt saved the firstborn of Israel. Isaiah 53 shows us a lamb, however, that would be for the remission of sin for everyone who would believe. And John says, this is him. This is the lamb. The way in which the Apostle John pins this in the original language specifies that this is not just a lamb, this is the eternal lamb, the forever lamb, which coincides with what we read in the book of Hebrews, that he is able forever to satisfy for sins. He is a forever Savior. There will never be a need for another one. There there could not be another one. No one could do what this lamb is doing. Is it any wonder then that Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says this is the powerful lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the gospel. This man, this lamb is the good news of God. And God has provided him for your salvation and he is the only way for your salvation. No other source or provision for your spiritual life, friend, exists outside of this one who is the Lamb of God. There is no hope for your salvation outside of Him. You must come to this Lamb. You were born in your sins. You have acted on your sins. You have, you have stained yourself You have proven what you are in the sight of a holy God. He will not forget your sins. He will not pass over your sins lightly. He will not excuse your sins. You are accountable for your sins. You will face the wrath of God for your sins. Unless you heed 
the words of John that in your place this Lamb has been given to take your sins away. To transform you from being what you are by birth, by nature, that is a sinner, into something that only Christ can make you through the new birth, and that is a saint. Cleansed and whole and made right with God. This is that Lamb. And John says to me, he says to you, he says to all the world, you must see Him. If this is the only way of life, then you must behold this way of life. You must see Him. And and when John says to behold the Lamb of God, He's not inviting you to come look at Him. He's not saying, hey, listen, we've got this thing going down here in the Judean wilderness tomorrow. We'd really like it if you'd come. I'd be really honored if you'd be my guest. I'd be so happy. I'd even take you to lunch after. Hey, by the way, we're going to be giving away prizes. If you'll just come see this lamb. It's not his words. It's not his heart. It's not the truth. John says, you must see him. Behold is not an invitation in this verse. It is a command. Look upon him. Consider yourself in light of who he is. Consider your needs and what he offers. Come and behold the wondrous mystery that God has given a lamb in your place to remove your sin forever. Won't you come? Won't you see? Won't you follow? Go back to verse 14 of this same chapter. Where John writes these words, and the Word became flesh. The Lamb became flesh and dwelled among us so that we could see Him. So that we could behold Him. And we saw His glory. What kind of glory? The glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and full of truth. In other words, full of salvation. He was honest about our sin and then He did something about our sin. He revealed our sin and then He cleanses our sin. This is the efficacy that John is speaking of. This is a -a one-of-a-kind lamb provided by God that categorically takes away sin. The language is striking. The Lamb doesn't just come and bear our sins, although He is a sin bearer. The Lamb comes and takes them away. You see, this is not the Lamb, and I say this with all care and compassion for my Roman Catholic friends, but this is not the Lamb that still hangs in their churches, dying on a cross, perpetually bearing their sin. He does not do that. He removes their sin. Once and for 
so that we don't have the need of constant sacrifice. He's already done it. And the cross is empty and so is the tomb. He does not simply bear sin. He vanquishes sin. He destroys sin. He conquers sin. What sin did you encounter in your life this week? Was it your anger? Was it your pride? Was it your lust? Was it your greed? Was it your apathy? Was it your lack of love? Christ died to remove that. He has conquered that sin. It has no power over the believer. Except the power we choose to give it when we wander back into it. But it, by the work of the Lamb, is gone. John says, you've got to come see this. This is the work of that Lamb. This is why Jesus could say categorically throughout His ministry in places like Mark chapter 2 with the paralytic man, Son, get up and walk. Why? Your sins are forgiven. They're done. And what does it say the Pharisees did? They were amazed because he taught as one possessing what? Authority and not like themselves. They couldn't do that. But this lamb could. And this lamb did. To the glory of God and for the good of the people of God, he removes their sin. And even more astounding are the words of Hebrews chapter 10. I've read these before many times to you. And because of the work of, their, of the Lamb, God says this, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. I'm not going to forget them. I will choose not to remember them. He wouldn't be God if He could forget something. It is so much more powerful that He says, I will not remember them. I will put them away intentionally, willfully, so that these people are free because of the Lamb, because of this perfect, spotless, efficacious sacrifice that actually accomplished forgiveness of sins, cleansing of polluted hearts, new creatures made, John says, come and behold the forever Lamb who forever removes your sin. Hey, that's not just good news, right? That's great news. That's the greatest news. There'll never be greater news. You go home after church today and you can read on the news that Vladimir Putin has pulled all the troops out of Ukraine, that world peace has come, that there's not going to be any more war today or tomorrow or next week, but it does not even come close to rivaling this great news. Your sins are forgiven. For all of eternity. What an effective lamb. The final lamb. 
How many lambs had had to go before him? How many? Stop and think about that for a moment. How many lambs died in the history of Israel? And here's the tragedy. Mommy and daddy lamb have a baby lamb. Shortly after, they are offered and they are killed for the sacrifice of sin. Only for their little you to have to grow up and die for sin as well. And his yous. And his little cute baby sheep after him. On and on they died. Until we reach this lamb. He has no offspring because no offspring will be necessary. He will have accomplished it all. He has no offspring because He has no work to finish. It is finished. There's the hope of efficacy. Lastly, there's the hope of the extent. What, what hope, what confident expectation lie in John's Closing words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, John has favorite words, as do all the writers of Scripture. They all have favorite words that they like to use to communicate the ideas that God has inspired them to write. And two of John's favorite words, and now I speak of the Apostle John, Two of his favorite words are these, believe and world. Believe and world are, are just everywhere in his Gospels, in his three shorter epistles, in the book of Revelation. How then do we need to understand what John is saying? How, what is the extent that John is trying to communicate about this glorious salvation? How far, how much does this lamb save? To whom, John, is it applied? Is it to everyone? Has this lamb come to take away the sins of the world without qualification of any kind? Are everyone's sins forgiven and taken away? Are we really all right with God? Well, the answer is defined by Understanding the proper use of the term world as John uses it here in John chapter 1 and verse 29. There are some who would teach that indeed everyone is going to heaven, that all are saved and all will be saved regardless of what God they worship, regardless of what message they believe, because God is loving and He wouldn't send anyone to the hell He created for sinners. So this must mean, they would say, that everyone is included in John's terminology of the word world here. But we need to understand that's not the case. That's the heresy that's long been condemned, always been condemned in the true believing church. That's the heresy of universalism. So what does John mean then? Well, I want to take you on just a, a quick Bible study tour of the Gospel of John in the term world. The term world is used by the Apostle John in his Gospel in ten different ways. 
And it's important that if you're going to get the message of Scripture right, you know how he's using the word in any one particular case. For example, he uses the term world to refer to the entire created universe. In John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus says this, Now, Father, glorify me with, together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Referring to creation. Before the world was created. Secondly, John uses the word world to refer to the physical earth, the sphere upon which we live and exist. In John chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, here He loved them to the end. And so, at times, it refers not only to all of the physical universe, but to the specific of earth. Third, John uses the term world to refer to the evil system of this age that Satan controls. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. For in the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. He's the overcoming lamb. And so he refers to what Paul will also refer to in Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks about the dominion of Satan over this realm, the prince of the power of the air, and so on and so forth. The word world can refer to that evil system. Fourth, John uses the word world to refer to to unbelievers. In John chapter 7 and verse 7, the world cannot hate you, speaking of Christians and disciples, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The world, those without Christ who hate Christ. Fifth, the term world in the Gospel of John can refer simply to a large group of people. In John chapter uh, 6, verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, they say, the world has gone after him, meaning Jesus. Very upset. Their popularity has taken a hit. The poles have shifted. And the people are now, the world, they say, is going after Jesus. John chapter 7 and verse 4, John uses the term world in a sixth way to refer to the general public. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Tell it to everybody. Reveal it to everyone. In John chapter 1 verse 29, where we are this morning, John uses the term world to refer to both Jews and Gentiles. All kinds of people. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, takes away the sin of the world. 
And this is our meaning in the text today. It's the world to include all types of people. There is no person, there is no group for whom the Lamb did not come to die. He didn't come to die for the Americans, but not the Russians. He didn't come to die for the Africans, but not the Canadians. He came to die for all kinds of people, for every kind of people. Male and female, rich and poor, young and old, slave and free. Educated and non-educated. He is the Savior for the world. And He is the only Savior for the world. There is not another Savior. And that is what is really being communicated here. He is the Lamb, the only Lamb for the world. There is not another. The Jews are not saved by one lamb and the Gentiles by another. He is the lamb for the world. We see that borne out in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 that we looked at earlier. Worthy are you to take the book, speaking of the lamb, and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from where? Every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. Heaven is an amalgamation of all kinds of people from all parts of the world, from every age, that speak every language. And this is the Lamb that saved them. Same Lamb. Multitude of different people. Same Lamb. The extent of the Lamb's ministry will go out to all the world. It does not mean, however, that all the world will respond in faith to that Lamb. Tragically. Number eight, the term world in the Gospel of John refers to simply the sphere of humanity. John 1.10, He was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. Humanity in general rejects this Lamb. In John chapter 17 and verse 9, it refers to the non-elect of God. Jesus in His high priestly prayer. This is Jesus, the Lamb Himself praying this. He says, speaking of His disciples, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. I don't pray for the world in the way that I pray for my people from the ones that you gave me before the foundation of the earth. I'm praying for them, not the world. For they are, for the ones you have given me, they are yours. And so I pray for them, Jesus says. And then lastly, number 10, in John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus uses the term world to refer to those believing elect whom God has given to the Son, given to the Lamb for their salvation. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. And some might read that and say, see, don't judge. God won't even judge. You misread. He sent His Son 
into the world, meaning us, the world of believers, the world of those who believe on the Lamb, not to judge them, but that through Him the world might be saved. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and it gives life to the world. You say, well, how do we know that's not everybody? How do we know that? Because if it was for everybody, then God mistakenly barred Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden and eating of the fruit of the tree of life. But He set the angels to guard it so that they could not come back into the garden and eat of that fruit, eat of that bread, if you will, and find life. Why? They were under judgment. And so it's not offered to everyone in the sense that He saves everyone. Saves His people. His people believe He is their Lamb. And so it is not a a potential salvation that John the Baptist was proclaiming here in John chapter 1, verse 29. This is not potential salvation. This is real salvation made actual by the Lamb to a set-apart group of people who would believe. It is for them. But it can only come through Him. Behold, John says, this Lamb. And in his view, the view of this Lamb, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. There's no male or female, bond or free, rich or poor, pious or pagan. He is the only Savior for all kinds of men. And all kinds of mankind. In plain language, He is the Lamb of God, the only Savior for the world. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostles boldly declare this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby you must be saved. And that is the message of the Baptist. You must be saved. And you will only be saved through this Lamb. Come behold Him. Come behold Him, sinner. That's me. That's you. Come look upon Him. Come believe Him. You must be born again or you will perish eternally. Come believe the Lamb. Some have suggested that the terminology of world here not only communicates its relationship and application to mankind, it communicates something of its relationship and application to sin. There is no sin in this world which the Lamb cannot save. And I kind of like that too. There is no sin in the world that the Lamb cannot save. No sin. No sin too great. No sinner too far gone. No person too rebellious against a holy God that this Lamb cannot save. Think about that. Think about yourself. 
Think about the things that you have thought. The things you have wanted to do. The things you've done. And think about how that is viewed by a holy God who tolerates no sin. And realize that no sin that you have committed and no sin that anyone else has committed is so great that the Lamb cannot save. He is the Savior for all sin that exists in the world. You don't have one Lamb for class A sins and another Lamb for class B sins and another Lamb for state felony sins. He is the Lamb for all sin. While we were sick these past couple of weeks, Weston had a philosophy paper due for one of his college classes and we had to watch a a movie that he could extract biblical principles and philosophic principles from and write a paper on. So he said, hey dad, let's watch Amazing Grace. We've seen it before, but we hadn't seen it in a long time, so we popped it in and played that movie. William Wilberforce was quite a man. What he did to end the slave trade is nothing less than miraculous and astounding. But as great as all of that was, the greatest line in the entire movie came from the lips of John Newton. Wilberforce went to him at one point in his life and he said, I need you to write down everything you remember from your days as a slave trader. I need their names. I need where they were. I need to know everything you can remember. And Newton said, I can't. I can't. He said, but though I'm old and my memory is almost gone, two things I remember. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. That's what John the Baptist is saying. We are great but Christ is a greater Savior. Come, behold Him. Let's bow in prayer.